Hello. Welcome, everybody. Howdy. We are recording this episode today on August 11th, 2020. Uh, it is 7 a.m. here and 6 a.m. where Hari sits. Welcome, everybody. It's actually 2022. Um, Rebecca was living in a cave since uh, <laughs> COVID hit. So COVID, COVID hit and the, the, the perception of time has been altered a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, welcome everybody to the podcast. Uh, we got a lot of things to talk about today. Um, the, the, the first one that we want to talk about is stock buyback. The, the, I keep saying Anti-Inflation Act, Inflation Reduction Act. A, a, a big part of that uh, is, is the stock buybacks, the, the new rule around, new tax rule around stock buybacks. And we want to talk about how that might impact how companies operate and how it impacts, uh, you know, shareholders and investors. That's one thing we want to talk about. And we also want to talk about the, just the general state of the economy. You know, where are we right now? We just got a new inflation print yesterday. Was it yesterday or two days ago? Two days ago. Uh, yesterday. Was it yesterday? Okay. Yeah. We got, we got it yesterday. So we'll talk about what that means. Kind of the macro backdrop. And then lastly, We'll do this with every podcast, with every episode. We'll cover one particular company. And like we did in the previous episode, uh, we'll kind of get into the numbers a little bit. Um, this this time around, we want to look at Disney and specifically their streaming business and kind of talk through their performance last quarter and what that means for the future. They just reported their earnings yesterday. So uh, we'll talk about those two th three things. So let's get started. Stock buybacks. So, Hari, um, let's let's start let's start here. The the I'm going to say Anti-Inflation Act. Whatever. Same it's thing. all good. Anti-Inflation Act. Uh, how is it anti-inflation? Like, what is the, what is the actual kind of proposed anti-inflation <clears throat> measures here? Yeah. So there's. I think there's. The main thing is around healthcare spending around drug uh, programs. So uh, the way it typically works is that drug companies set their own prices in the U.S. and there's limited, uh, you know, controls that are put in place around those. Um, which, in a market-based economy like the United States, that makes a lot of sense, right? So there's a couple of areas that people need to kind of pay attention to with that, which is. Uh, especially if you're looking to invest in drug companies, um, Medicare is the one that is allowed to negotiate drug prices for at first a few uh, handful of drugs and then the number of drugs will increase over time. <clears throat> so with Medicare being able to reduce the price on drugs, um, they are able to negotiate prices and keep things low. The problem is, is that the private sector doesn't and private insurance doesn't have that same uh price control. So effectively, what is going to happen is Medicare will be able to control their cost, but it'll be passed along to um, private insurance to cover some of that expense. Um, so the idea here is that you're going to reduce the cost, but it's only six drugs to begin with. And then, it, it you know, as it gets bigger, it, it's, you know, it'll cover more things. So there's a couple problems with this. One of the, the biggest problems right now is that 
the United States pays a lot of money for drugs because the U.S. doesn't have these price controls. Other countries do. And so what ends up uh, have price controls? So they essentially the U.S. is subsidizing the price of drugs for the rest of the world. Right. Um, They pay a lot here in the United States. And then we Canada and other countries pay a lot less. So we're trying to put those price controls. What will happen is if drug companies want to maintain their profits, they'll shift the cost to the other drugs that are in the marketplace um, because they want to keep enough money to put into R&D and marketing and all of the things that they have to do. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the actual net benefit, I I don't see that there's going to be much benefit in actually controlling inflation, Right. Um, let's talk about the, yes, I just wanted to kind of touch on that real quick. I don't think we have to get yeah. into it, but let's talk about the other piece of this, which is, you know, they're going to raise, how are going to fund, how are, how are they going to, you know, right. get enough cash to fund for the, all these operations. Yeah. You know, there's a whole bunch of climate stuff in there. And this is where we talk about the stock buyback tax, the new proposed stock buyback tax. I think this is a particular interest to us as investors who like you know we had a whole episode on you know share share cannibals and stock buybacks as a great way to uh, return return excess cash to shareholders um this this kind of goes against that line of thinking so i think we should really spend some time thinking about this uh so yeah. walk, maybe uh, how about how about we start here high level what is stock buyback so you know, if you remember one of our earliest episodes, we talked a lot about, um, you know, what is what is what is the actual share of a company mean, right? And so, if, imagine if you had a company and you had, um, you know, Becco and I own a company and we each own fifty shares, right? Or let's say we had a third partner and we each own thirty-three shares, right? So if that partner decides to leave, right, what you're essentially doing is uh, saying that that partner can sell to a third party, right? So then the, the split would be equal or, or Becco and I could offer to buy the shares of that people, that person. Now let's say Becco doesn't want them. So I buy a third, right? You know, I, I now own two thirds and the other person owns one third, right? In essence, that's all a, a stock buyback is, right? Is there's somebody in the marketplace who has, you know, there's, let's say a publicly traded company has a hundred shares those shares are being transacted daily and, you know, in the in volume of millions of shares. All the company is doing is buying those shares for the purposes of either offsetting is- shares that they've issued or to just overall reduce the number of shares outstanding so that each owner uh, of the existing business gets to have more of the business, right? So in the first case, I bought those shares I got more of the business, right? So I could own more of the business as a percentage. And this is an actually a fantastic way to reduce um, the not only the share volume and raise the price, um, but it also benefits the owners of the business because they get to own more without do, you know any uh, penalty, right? So, so let, me, yeah, let, me stop you, let me stop you there. Just to summarize, and I want to raise a couple points. Okay, so it's basically a way to reduce share count. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how a lot of companies use it to return 
when we say you know return you know excess cash to shareholders, you can basically buy back shares and reduce the you know the pizza is sliced into you know million slices. You're reducing those number of slices down to from ten to nine million. So every person that gets a slice has a little bit you know bigger portion of that pie. Right, um, and and the and the pie itself stays the same size, right? I think that's that's a big part of this, right? Is it right. in and of itself, it doesn't change the size of the pie. That's right. Yeah, the pie stays the same. Here's the question. What are the arguments for what what is the what is the logic behind proposing this? Yeah, so if, if you remember, one of the things I said was share-based compensation is a big part of companies' um, ways to compensate employees. So uh, executives and employees, right? So they may issue shares, right? Which is is dilutionary, right? It dilutes the number of uh, shares outstanding. So your share of the profit goes down as an owner of the business. So they're, they're on one hand doing that. And then on the other hand, they're offsetting it by buying back those shares. So the, the tax that they're proposing here is if you buy back, um, hundred shares during a, a, a year, a calendar year, but you issue 50 shares for compensation during that year, the taxable amount is actually on the 50, the amount of money you spent on those 50 shares. And from that, you take 1% of the, the, the gross amount. So this is considered a excise tax, right? Which is the same kind of tax like on um, alcohol or gas, right? It's when you buy it at the pump, you pay an extra 1.08 you know, or 8.25% 8 or something. So here, here it's going to be 1%. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I want to focus on the argument put forth by those who, who are proponent of the tax because I think it would be good to talk about them. So why yeah. is this? Why is this? something you know why would somebody think that this is a good idea so there are a lot of people who are um opposed or critics of stock buybacks because they they seem to think that it's not a good benefit to uh, the you know that companies aren't using that money to invest in you know new products employees etc right and you know on it can i just one more thing Invest in the R&D and the growth of the company. That's one thing. Right. And I would say the other thing is that a lot of the executives, if you look at their compensation structure, I mean, majority of the executives are compensated by stocks and equity, you know, equity piece of the company. And if you buy back shares with excess cash, you know, their stock price will go up. And so I think in the eyes of those who propose this tax, it's just stock buyback is a is a gimmick. I heard that term thrown around a lot. It's it's a gimmick to juice their own return, so that you know their their share prices go up. And you know, um, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of like a shortcut. Right. So let's let's take an example of a, a perfect business um, <clears throat> that used buybacks to their advantage. So AutoZone, um, you know, makes is a retail. Uh, company that uh, sells auto parts here in the United States. Um, and between like 2010 and 2020 or so, they they 
revenue essentially doubled. Okay. Um, and this is a company that doesn't pay a dividend as far as I know, or, or a minimal one, but they used their excess profit to um, buy back shares. And the reason that they did that is that they had no place to really invest their money, right? There was AutoZone had stores pretty much everywhere. They were slowly growing their store count, but they couldn't really spend all of that money effectively to do it, right? And then hiring more people really wouldn't help them in this scenario, right? So the critics are saying that, it, you know, they should take that cash and they should, you know, give it back to employees, give it back to the shareholders and all of that stuff. And the reality of the situation is if you look at AutoZone, they had a 10x return on their share uh, on their share price because they basically reduced their share count by you know some some very large amount like 70% or 60% right and then by doing so and doubling their profits you know at, in the same time you basically got a huge you know increase in your uh, per share profit just because they did this buyback right so you know Anybody who's making that argument doesn't understand what is actually happening, right? Imagine if you were a employee of this company and you got a you you owned shares because they were given to you as compensation, right? A buyback is actually benefiting you tremendously. For without doing anything else, your share count reduce reduction means you own more of the business, you get a bigger share of the profits, um, and your share price goes up, right? So you actually benefit as an employee. You benefit. Uh, yeah, I think I think. OK, so maybe I'll pose this question to make it very clear. Why would why would an executive and the board of directors decide to do a, a buyback versus a cash dividend? Because from the eyes of those, you know, from from the proponent of, of the critic, the, the critics will look at that and say, OK, you have excess cash on your balance sheet. You've made a ton of money. Return that instead of juicing your own return. You know, instead of juicing your own return by buying back shares so that your price, share prices go up, why don't you distribute that to to the shareholders? Yeah. So the the problem with the dividend is it's 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 a terrible way to return money to shareholders in almost every situation because a dividend is taxed again as income. So Imagine a company makes $100 in profit. Um, they distribute that money to, uh, so, and the, there's 100 shares for simplicity. That means every share gets $1 worth of earnings, right? Well, that $1 in earnings has already been taxed at the corporate tax rate. Now you go into the next um phase of this where you pay out a dividend of let's say that entire amount gets paid out well now each dollar is now taxed at the individual's tax rate so essentially this profit now has is gone from uh you know been taxed at a 30 plus percent tax rate on the corporate side um and that number could be anywhere from 15 to 25 percent depending on you know uh what the corporation's basic you know tax rate is and then it's being taxed again when it gives it comes to the uh, to the shareholder. That's so this is not a this is not a great way to actually distribute money, right? And what you're doing with share buybacks is at a one percent rate. It's not a very large amount, 
but it's not a good way to actually, uh, it, this is something we should actually be encouraging companies to do. Because imagine if you are a pension fund or you're a, uh, own a S&P 500 as part of your, uh, your uh, 401k, right? Everybody benefits from the price of a share increase, right? Um, and that money is, if spent wisely, right? And this that, that key phrase is important here. If, if a company's price, you know, stock price is low, a share buyback is, a, is, is almost like a, a, you know, you're like value investing, right? You're buying back shares of, of, of you know, that's worth a dollar for 50 cents, right? If it's, if it's half off and, and if it's overvalued, it's not a good use of capital, right? Most people don't, you know, take that into account. There are a lot of businesses that are perennially undervalued, like, you know, it used to be Southwest Airlines, NVR, which is a company we talked about, a home builder. AutoZone is one of those that is perennially undervalued. And they, so their buybacks are doubly uh, beneficial because you're, you're essentially getting more for your buyback than uh, otherwise um, noted. So, so just to, to kind of get like back to this, right? This is not a good way for, um, you know, because it sets a precedent that we can, uh, if we we can raise this buyback tax in the future, and it may become a material amount of money that reduces the actual buyback, you know, calculus for people. Yeah, I think that was a good point there. Let's let's talk about the actual law. I mean, you talk you touched on that really quick, but I, I would like to I'd like to think about this or talk about this law and how. The incentive now, because of the the, the tax rule, how, how that changes. If you're sitting at you know if you're if you're sitting on the board of one of these companies, how does this tax change your you know your calculus here? One percent tax, excise tax. Well, I, I think excess profits are always going to be there for mature businesses, and you know what it may end up doing is if it gets high enough, it may. It may make the decision between dividend and buyback less, um, uh, you know, more difficult to make. You know, companies that were doing buybacks may actually just issue a dividend instead, right? And a lot of people think, oh, if I'm a retiree, it's better for me to get a dividend um, because that's cash that's coming in, right? But, you know, I think the best businesses understand what the value of their company is. And then buyback shares below that value, right? Uh, Warren Buffett does this with Berkshire Hathaway stock, um, and you know, lots of companies that are successful do that, right? Um, if you look at the S and P 500, 27 stocks in the S and P 500 accounted for uh, more than half of the buybacks, right? And it, and we're talking about uh, about a trillion dollar that's spent on the buyback every year. Um, you know, so so this is a is a fairly sizable amount of money that's spent on buybacks, um, and you know, it, it's what it's going to end up doing is it may shift where you know people are giving back you know money to shareholders, right? Because I don't think what it's going to do is force them to actually hire more employees or anything like that, because that's not beneficial to uh, when you have excess profit. You don't want to reinvest it if you can't get good returns, right? Yeah. In fact, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think those are all like really good points. Um, I think we can spend probably another, I don't know, 20 minutes talking about this. And in particular, I think we can talk about like, you know, we could probably have another episode about the, about the, the merits of, of stock buybacks and maybe like the, the bad cases of stock buybacks, because we saw a lot of that happen in the last like three, four years where, you know, the shares are incredibly overvalued, but to, to, I mean, some of the merits, you know, some of the arguments put forth against the stock buybacks, I think that the examples that might cite are things that, that, that we observed in the last couple of years where, you know, insane level of valuation, but they're still continuing to buy back shares. You know, maybe the better, better case might be for that is, you know, you maybe hold on to that cash reserve and put it somewhere else. Um, because you know, yep. buying back shares when the PE is like a 30, 40 doesn't make any sense. Um, right. So I, I, we can probably spend another whole episode about this, but let's, let's move on to something else. Um, let's talk about Disney. Uh, yeah. And the streaming business. Did you call it? Did what, ha what happened? <laughs> well, so, you know, if you recall from, uh, earlier episodes, we talked about Netflix and Netflix was, you know, kind of pioneered the streaming uh, market. And what ended up happening with Netflix is, uh, you know, they were talking about how great they were and how they were going to, you know, blow it off, you know, blow the doors off of it and eat De uh, Disney's lunch and all this stuff. And, you know, you and I talked how much they were spending on making new content because they had to keep acquiring customers. And eventually, you know, the the pouring money into the funnel and getting more people to buy, it ended up like people were just tired of it and said, well, I'm going to buy Netflix or, or I'm going to get Disney Plus because I can just switch my streaming service every month and I'll switch over to Disney Plus for a few months or uh, HBO Max or whatever it is, right? Um, and that's that's ended up happening. Competition hurt them. There's only so many eyeballs. I mean, if you remember, we we talked about Netflix was saying their competition was sleep, right? Like th that was how arrogant they were about like the 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 market being like people love us so much that they they you know they the only competition we really have is sleep. And you know Disney has a catalog of. Uh, going back a hundred years almost at this point uh, of stuff that people are watching and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And I think Disney is at risk of the same problem with Netflix, right? They got to get people to come onto the channel, but they also have, um, you know, they also have to make money off of this, you know, deal. And so they're starting to raise prices uh, because they were putting low prices to entice people to come on. Um, so it, it's going to be a very interesting thing because Disney's going to have, you know, had making a lot of money in other areas. Their theme parks was what actually drove a lot of this because they were shut down for two and a half years and then they were op only operating at, you know, limited capacity. Now that they're in full swing, profits are coming back, you know, people are coming back, spending money again on, you know, non-movie stuff at Disney. And I think it's helping them and you know, and they're hitting on their streaming content also. Yeah, I want to. I want to just give everyone some numbers here. Okay, so combined, Hulu, ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, 
have over 221 million, million subscribers. Netflix has 220 million subscribers. So there you go. Um, you know, something that I, I want to maybe touch on here is the something that um, that is sort of like, I think, you know, for you and me as entrepreneurs of our business, it is, you know, it is, I guess it's something that I've been really like experientially learning, which is that when you try to acquire a customer, the amount of money and time spent doing that, like marketing dollars and just your time and energy, sometimes those are not really accounted for. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get the customers and then the customer pays and then boom, yep. profit. It doesn't work that way, right? You have to take into account all of the marketing dollars spent. I mean, that's what people call customer acquisition cost, right? CAC. Right. And, and that is insane for businesses that are just starting right because there's nothing you don't have anything to stand on you don't have brand you don't have anything so netflix spent a ton of money on marketing they also spent a ton of money on creating new content and this is the point creating content this is the point where we talked about in the in the, in the episode where we talked about netflix and, and disney yep. was that what disney has is insane because their content is is you know, is um, is evergreen. It's right. evergreen. You make one, and then the kids watch it. Kids watch it over and over again. And then, let's say you grow up, you have your own kid. They watch it, and it's multi generational content. Netflix yep. is sort of like a cheap plastic product. It's like one and done kind of thing. Right. <laughs> Even though it costs so much money. And what's in what's interesting about this whole thing is that Netflix never made any profit in its entire yep. history. Yep. Um, and and have and have a lot of debt now too also right yeah and now like what what is going to happen to them right it's like the share price has plummeted and they're now looking at ad business ad business is just like i mean for me i think for you too the incentive structures are totally effed i mean yeah you're not really serving customers who are watching your there isn't a direct incentive now your customers are ad provide you know these ad buyers, right? Um, you know, so well. And the other interesting part about that is their entire business model was on hours watched and these kind of things that they never shared with anyone. And now that they have to have uh, advertisers, if they put an advertising tier, they have to share that information. So, you know, Netflix would have you know a movie that maybe flops on their thing, but say they could call it a success, right? But now. You know, advertisers are going to have to target specific shows, right, that they want to watch. And so that's going to affect, you know, how they invest in content. It's going to change the nature of their their business, right? Even though there's a there's a, a, a ad free version, right? It's going it, to it's going to taint the ad free version also just by the nature of some people are going to want to advertise on certain shows and not. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, and. And so I, I think the the thing is it's it's fundamentally changing their business in ways that people aren't understanding. And Disney Plus is offering is going to be offering an ad ad based version also. Um, and I'm curious as to what is going to happen to that business, right? Um, because I it, I wonder how it'll change Disney Plus also. Yeah, it makes me it makes me wonder. I mean, I feel like 
I don't know we can talk about this again. All, all these topics could deserve a podcast on its own. But I feel like Disney, I mean, if I were sitting on the board, if I were on the exec team, I mean, obviously they have more data than than what, what a plea, this this couch, uh, armchair you know, yep. investor. I, I mean, I think, I feel like it would be a mistake to go down the ad model if Disney, I mean, I feel like people would be paying, would be willing to pay a little bit more for their content. I feel like that would be a mistake. Right. Anyway, okay, let's talk about last topic here. The state of the economy, uh, inflation number came out again at a point, what is it, 8.5? Yeah. The month of July. Yep. Let me pull this up. Um, I think it's... Um... Eight point five percent in July, so down from nine point one. Mm. So, I mean, maybe just paint a broad picture of what this what this mean. I mean, I mean, every news right now is talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. Okay, we've heard it enough. It's like okay, we're in. Everyone feels it. What's this? Yep. What? Where are we? Where do we go from here? Bank of England raised their interest rate benchmark interest rate. Maybe it was it Monday. Or last week, um, yeah, August fourth. What? What? How do we make sense of this? Well, I, I think the, you know, the. I think we talked about this on the last week's episode about how oh, inflation oh, oh, impacts people impacts. in different ways, right? Different rungs of society have diff- have a different impact on. So, like, Walmart shoppers are impacted more by rising food prices because they have less disposable income. And so when you raise the price, it impacts them. And if you look at the high end of the market, right? Um, Samsung, you know, who makes, you know, smartphones, they're saying that their most expensive phones are uh, growing by 20% uh, year over year, right? So they're, they're, they announced their most expensive heads handset was like $1,800 and they're expecting 20% growth in in that uh, smartphone segment, so you know it's there's this dichotomy right that we're seeing in in terms of there are people who are uh, currently employed you know making a lot of money a ten percent rise in their food price is you know is not a big strain on their budget right and then you're seeing in the U S you know a lot of people on the lower end uh, of the socioeconomic spectrum who have that ten percent is essentially wiping out their their monthly discretionary spending, right? So they're cutting back on a lot of things. And I think even in between, right, you're seeing people cutting back, right, on spending. And and that's why Walmart was cutting jobs. Uh, And we went through a laundry list of those companies last week who were were cutting jobs, even in the tech sector, right, were cutting jobs. I mean, is this this basically, are we going into, are we in stagflation? Is this this a, do we we tell... (laughs) I don't know, do we do we tell our kids in the future that oh you know we went through a period of stagflation when they learn about it is this is this it? I I think it's going to come because with high inflation I don't see that oil and gas prices are going to come down. You know when until demand comes down right demand is starting to come down a little bit because that's that actual drop from nine to eight point five was mostly energy because energy was the one that was causing most of the inflation. Uh, so I, I think we're already looking at ne- two quarters of negative growth, 
you know, that's already in the books now. Um, so we are technically in a recession. And I mean, I think you have to call it stagflation, right? Because it's inflation plus stagnant growth, right? So um, it's just a question of how much impact is this going to have and for how long, right? And, you know, are there going to be a big, you know, is there going to be like a Lehman Brothers style, like bank that goes under or a big company that goes under that then has a ripple effect across multiple, you know, areas, right? Or, or does some country in Europe have, you know, cause a problem, a tipping point for the, the rest of the world, right? That, that's also a possibility. Yeah. I mean, if I were to speculate here, this is, again, complete armchair like speculation. I feel like something's going to break in Europe. I mean, yeah, it doesn't look very good. I mean, if if any of you are watching in Europe, like comment below what, what you think is going on there. I think I would be interested to hear your take on this. Um, great. Yeah. I, one 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 thing I would add to that is that um, you know we we haven't talked about it much on this call, but um, or, or or the stream, but. Uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you guys like during the stream or, you know, afterwards. So if you can comment on anything we talked about um, last week, we uh, had uh, someone comment about um, covering DaVita, uh, the healthcare company that um, so we're planning on doing that next week uh, uh, on the podcast. So uh, we'd love for you guys to like comment about, you know, like share uh, with your, you know, colleagues and that would really help us out as we you know try and keep this thing growing yeah definitely would appreciate all of your likes please do that at the bottom and uh comment definitely helps so we appreciate any help there um all right so let's let's wrap it up i think that that was that is it for today's episode i hope it was entertaining one uh and valuable and i uh, hope you guys um Hope to get hope to see you guys next week, Thursday. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks.